This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, things were different this year for the annual event known in Russia as Victory Day. Since World War II, this has been a day where the might of the Russian army has been on display. This year, the might was a little less than expected in light of the country's ongoing war with Ukraine. And all of this at the same time that Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was in Ukraine for a surprise visit. We'll have more on that as well. Right now, we're joined by Redmond Shannon, Global News European correspondent. Hello, Redmond. Good morning, Simi. Let's start with this look at the Russian parade. Was this the same as what we have seen in previous years? A little scale back, as you mentioned, because, of course, so much of uh, Russia's uh, military resources are in Ukraine or on the borders of Ukraine, focused on that, uh, as President Vladimir Putin has uh, called it, a special military operation. Um, as m many of the rest of the world looks at it, uh, an invasion of Ukraine and uh, a war with Ukraine. And it is uh, not going, one would imagine, to, to plan. He would have hoped by now uh, to have some sort of victory to declare uh, on Victory Day in Russia, a very symbolic day, but um, has, was unable to do so and did not do so, did not declare any type of victory today, uh, despite, of course, the Russian gains within um, uh, Ukraine's territory and uh, the probable big gap in his hopes was that Mariupol hasn't been completely conquered just yet or completely taken because the uh, Ukrainian troops remained holed up in that steel plant in Mariupol. All the civilians uh, were taken out over the weekend, but the, they still are holed up there. And that's probably the one gap in that land bridge between the Donbass and Crimea that Russia wanted to, to tie up. So uh, no victory declared, but um, President Vladimir Putin of Russia continued to draw parallels between this war and the Second World War when uh, the Soviet Union, and that was, of course, uh, Russia, along with Ukraine and the other Soviet republics, fighting together against Nazi Germany uh, and defeating Nazi Germany, and this is the day that they commemorate it. Um, he draws parallels, of course, continuing to say that uh, uh, Ukraine is uh, ruled by Nazis, uh, and that is the narrative that the Russian people hear. Uh, so we saw a, a slightly scaled-back uh, parade today, but a lot on display, and he continues to blame the West for its encroachment, its move to the East, as he puts it, for uh, and blames and even uh, implied that the West intended to uh, take back Crimea for Ukraine. Of course, there's no evidence to suggest that was ever going to happen uh, anytime soon uh, at all. Um, but that was something that he mentioned today as a reason for his, uh, his so-called special military operation. Right. And speaking of the West, they can, it continues to show support to Ukraine this weekend with the surprise arrival of Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau there. He becomes, Redmond, I guess, one of many of the Western leaders who have visited the area. Yes, a number of European leaders have uh, been to Ukraine um, over the past few weeks. Uh, we'll probably, perhaps uh, I'm speaking to you from London. We might remember uh, a few weeks ago, 
Prime Minister Boris Johnson uh, walking the streets of Kyiv with uh, President Zelensky, uh, a number of Central European leaders in particular, but now uh, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau with a surprise visit there alongside um, Deputy Prime Minister Christy Freeland, who has strong connections uh, with uh, Ukraine herself, and the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Melanie Jolie. They went to the Canadian Embassy in Kyiv, raised the Maple Leaf flag over the Embassy again for the first time since early February when it was uh, um, vacated uh, over fears of the invasion that was coming. And uh, he met with uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, met with President Zelensky, made further commitments in terms of aid, food aid, uh, demining equipment and military aid. And President Zelensky uh, grouping Canada with a very small club of nations who he said could do no more. They're, they're doing so much. So um, a st very strong relationship on display between the two leaders yesterday uh, in Kyiv when they met. That's so interesting then. So has there been like a continued, as you pointed out, many nations have made that pilgrimage to Ukraine to do that. Does that continue to show the strong support, do you think, of particularly countries in Europe to what is going on in Ukraine? I think that's the point. It's to show Russia that, uh, well, we're not even uh, afraid to go. Um, obviously, there's a huge amount of security, a lot of secrecy for uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's visit and other visits. Um, and it's not an easy thing to get a leader in and out of uh, Kyiv. Um, but I think it, it is very symbolic um, when uh, Vladimir Putin will see these world leaders there. Uh, it's a sign of uh, not only um, we know the commitments they've made in monetary terms uh, and in equipment terms, but uh, this symbolic show of support by, by actually going there is, uh, is seen as hugely important in the solidarity of uh, Western nations with Ukraine. All right. Redmond, thank you so much. Thank you, Simi. Bye. That's Redmond Shannon, our Global News European. We just heard about what has been happening in Ukraine the past few days and, of course, the surprise visit of Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Let's get more on that aspect of the story now with David Aiken, our Global National Chief Political Correspondent. Good morning, David. Good morning, Simeon. Yeah, I don't know it was a surprise visit. I think a lot of people expected or suspected that our Prime Minister was going to do that eventually. It was definitely an unannounced visit, and for obvious security reasons, heavy security around the Prime Minister while he was in Kyiv touring Irpin, um, but, uh, and, and accompanied by the Deputy Prime Minister and Foreign Minister, uh, uh, Christopher Freeland and Melanie Jolie, respectively. Um, so uh, an unannounced visit for sure, but I think a lot of people we're expecting to see something like that, particularly since we've seen other leaders uh, from other uh, European countries. Boris Johnson from the UK uh, had visited there. And, uh, of course, we know the strong ties that Canada has uh, to Ukraine. Okay, and let's talk about how top secret was this? Was this known in Ottawa that he was going, or was this a surprise? Uh, it, it, it was... It was very quickly announced, and obviously there were Canadian reporters on the ground. We had we have reporters in Ukraine, Global News, of course, so we were uh, in Kyiv. Um, it's the sort of thing that we haven't seen something like this, I suppose, since um, uh, Stephen Harper visited Afghanistan. And so what would happen is uh, the news agencies here in Ottawa, including us, you know, we would get told on a you know top secret sort of basis uh, the PM's going to such and such a location and be prepared to uh, you know cover it. So in that sense, you know, we, we got a little bit of a heads up. But of course, uh, all all of his movements were under embargo for security reasons. In fact, we weren't supposed to have reported that he was in Ukraine until he'd left. He's actually in Poland today. That's where he um, spent the night. So he's in Poland, has some meetings, and then he'll come home. And the reason we ended up reporting it yesterday while he was in Ukraine is because 
The Ukrainians were very pleased to see our prime minister and people were putting pictures of him on social media. He posed for some photographs with some volunteers, some workers. Uh, mayors uh, of various cities were pleased to see him and, of course, the local media in Ukraine, which is doing just a tremendous job under tremendously difficult conditions, um, also reported his presence. So the cat was out of the bag uh, once people saw him in uh, in the Ukraine, uh, in Ukraine that uh, Ukrainian media and, and officials were putting it out there. And what did President Zelensky have to say about Canada's involvement in what is happening in Ukraine? Well, he's he... He was very thankful. I mean, I think that's the first thing. I mean, he said something along the lines of, um, you know, Canada is one of the few countries we cannot ask for more support of, of, or cannot more ask for more help from. So clearly there's a recognition that Canada is helping. Um, but he certainly he needs more help and he needs military equipment in order to uh, beat off the Russians. Canada did provide some more military aid yesterday in the form of uh, Justin Trudeau announcing some drones, uh, some satellite imagery, um, some more ammunition for the howitzer uh, weapons that we had already sent over. over. But notably as well, uh, Zelensky also said to Trudeau, listen, you are the prime minister of a G7 country. You're a significant player at NATO. Use your influence with other NATO members who have heavy weapons that we use. So that has been a role Canada's played you know, over, the, over 40, 50 years as a medium power. Sure, we don't have the kind of military kit the United States does, for example, but we can play an influential role in asking others to help. And I suspect that will be something that uh, the Prime Minister will be doing, and he may be doing it today in Poland, and he'll be doing mm-hmm. it uh, sort of at various meetings. We, we have a NATO meeting in June in Spain. That's going to be a key meeting. Uh, there's a G7 meeting in Germany, uh, also in June. That's going to be key. So I would expect the Prime Minister would take up Zelensky's challenge there and uh, see what he can do to get more weapons into Ukraine. And what took place during this visit? I understand they opened, they reopened the Canadian Embassy, but what else did the Prime Minister see? They did. They uh, talk just to, just about the embassy first. The embassy is now open in Kiev, but no consular services or immigration services are being provided there, and that's important because we know that one of the things, one of the issues that or criticism the government has is to get uh, Ukrainian visa applications processed quickly. Um, it won't happen at the embassy in Kiev. There'll be no uh, no applications for visas there. All that consular service work will continue to be done by other embassies in the region, chiefly in Poland. So that's important. So there was that embassy opening. That was significant. The prime minister also toured Irpin, and that's that suburb just northwest of the capital, Kiev. Um, it's it's a residential community. There's really no military targets, and yet uh, Putin's forces, you know, just indiscriminately shelled it. Many people died. And uh, Trudeau got a first-hand look at the kind of damage done. And it just reinforced for him, he talked about this at the press conference that the prime minister did, about the, quote, heinous war crimes that Putin's, uh, um, that Putin and his, uh, and his generals have committed in places like Irpin, many other places in Ukraine. And I think that was an important, uh, important for the prime minister to see that firsthand. Okay, so he saw all of that and now he's in Ukraine. So essentially it was just a reestablishing of Canada's support for Ukraine. Yeah, and it's an, it's an important symbol, uh, I think, and that's why other leaders have been to 
to Ukraine, a symbol to Russia. And of course, you know, Russia's just had that big May Day parade and it's and, and that whole the point of that parade is to show some symbolism or not, depending on how we interpret the day's events. So the fact that a G7 leader uh, is there, and of course, yesterday also the American First Lady, Jill Biden, was also there to meet uh, President Zelensky's wife on Mother's Day. Uh, these are important symbols that send a message to Russia about the solidarity the West has with Ukraine. And one assumes they're that's an important message for Ukrainians themselves who are fighting, who are doing whatever they can to support frontline defenders, that the world is standing with them. All right, David, thank you so much for the update. Hey, thanks so much, Simi. Cheers. That's David Aiken, our Global National Chief Political Correspondent, talking about this trip to Ukraine made by Prime Minister Trudeau. Uh, and as he mentioned there, he was welcomed by uh, President Zelensky as a, quote, good friend of our country. And he said, this is a gesture of support that we highly appreciate. And also interesting to note that President Zelensky said that Canada was second only to the United States in the scope of assistance it has been providing to Ukraine. And what they want now, as David mentioned, is for Canada to use whatever influence it may have to help get more uh, supplies and, you know, military equipment to Ukraine. Also, uh, Trudeau announcing more sanctions against 40 more Russian individuals, 21 oligarchs and close associates of the Russian regime, and 19 individuals in the Russian defense sector. So yes, lots more updates coming on that. The Prime Minister is in Poland today. Let's talk about protecting and saving the endangered southern resident killer whale population here on the south coast. There are a whole lot of different ways that attempts are being made to do that. Now the federal government is also bringing back a list of seasonal measures to protect that population. So if you spend time out on the water, these are good things that you need to know for this summer. Joining us now to talk more about it is Lance Barrett-Leonard, who's a senior scientist at the Cetacean Conservation Research Program. Lance, thank you for being here. Good morning, Sam. I'm actually with the Raincoast Conservation Foundation. Excellent. Well, you could talk about this. Let's talk about these measures. How good are these? Are you pleased with these? Um, well, I'm pleased with the fact that the, the federal government brought in uh, protection measures a few years ago. Uh, and that was after years of watching the southern resident killer whales uh, decline uh, over time. I'm not particularly uh, enthusiastic about the 2022 measures. Um, they're uh, a continuation pretty much of the same with a bit of tweaking here, a bit of change, a few changes there. It's... it's uh, uh, um, I think, uh, really, given the state of the population, we could have seen stronger changes, but stronger measures. But nonetheless, uh, I guess I'm happy that they exist. Right. So what cut you said, these are the same as what they had last year. So what are they putting into place here? What, what's going to happen? No, they're not the same as last year. They're they're uh, they're uh, adjusted and tweaked really from last year. Um, the, the measures that they put in place are... Um, uh, that have been put in place and are and are uh, revised slightly this year are involved creating uh, go f no boat zones where the whales uh, where the whales is protected in terms of being able to continue to forage. So these are some sanctuary areas, sometimes called restrictions on uh, continued restrictions on fishing, uh, particularly sport fishing for chinook salmon, which is the whale's favorite food and important food. And then uh, the program also continues a program of, of vessel slowdowns 
to um, uh, which have the effect of large vessels slow down ships, really, in the Strait of Juan de Fuca and the Strait of Georgia. And that has the effect of reducing noise, which really affects the whales negatively. Okay, and how have the kind of boating population or people out on the water responded to these in the last few summers? Do they do they go along with them? Is, is that and there been no issues with that? Yeah, excellent question. Um, the um, uh, that these measures have to uh, be followed up with some sort of uh, public. You know, it's pretty extensive publicity. These are big changes, uh, really, if, that started a few years ago for boaters and sports fishermen, and and also they have to be backed up with enforcement. and And those measures are happening to some extent. Again, I guess I'd, we'd like to see a little bit more. Uh, when I say we, my, my colleagues who are really concerned about this population, we'd like to see a little bit more on the enforcement front, um, particularly as far as sport fishing is concerned and uh, and recreational whale watching. But nonetheless, it's. Um, uh, I guess the situation when we compare it to, to five or ten years ago, um, there's much there's much greater awareness on the part of boaters as well as, uh, as enforcers. Yeah, Lance, can you explain to us what kind of an impact does noise pollution have on the whale population? Yeah, sure. Um, well, whales, I guess, first of all, light doesn't travel very well underwater. If you've been swimming you know, in our waters, you know that visibility is a few meters at best, you know, up to maybe in the winter, 10 or 15 meters at the very most. But but sound travels great distances, you know, many many kilometers, um, and uh, so and and boats are noisy. Um, they produce a lot, particularly large ships. They produce a lot of noise underwater, and so the, the whales swim around in this constant kind of acoustic smog, almost. Um, you know, a ship on the horizon that would seem completely in, inconspicuous to you or I um, could be <laughs> very loud for the whales. And so, um, what the, what that does is that the whales use echolocation instead of vision to find their prey. They make they make their own sounds. They listen for the echoes. That's how they find their fish. So, if there's a lot of background noise from ships, they have a hard time um, uh, finding their prey, and they have a hard time communicating. Right. So do we know then by how much do we have to reduce noise pollution where it has a positive impact on the whales? Yeah, I think every every bit that we can reduce it is positive. Um, there's not an absolute threshold. Um, I think if this population of killer whales was doing better, we we would say, okay, they're they're able to noise isn't good for them, but they're able to make a living anyway. But the fact that the population's in in uh, is struggling, and the fact that we know that that uh, in some years at least they're not getting enough to eat, um, so they're they're having difficulty finding finding fish. Um, that means, I think, that we um, that we need to pull out the stops to try to reduce underwater noise. And the good news is that's techni- technically rather feasible. Navy ships are very, very quiet. Ships can be made without huge ex- additional expense, made quiet. Existing ships can can operate more quietly simply by slowing down. Um, and and I must say, the shipping industry has been very uh, uh, on top of this issue. I, um, I have to give them credit. I think. Uh, these, these ship slowdowns in the Strait of Juan de Fuca were, were voluntary and are voluntary to, to, to a considerable extent still, organized through the Port of Vancouver. And they've really been quite effective in reducing underwater noise. Um, but further to go, small vessels are still a big problem. Um, but uh, that, I'd say, is one of the brighter um, uh, developments that I'm seeing. So when you say small vessels, then is that like tour operators, personal watercraft, that kind of thing? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And one of the things the, the um, that I, I've really feel needs to be done is if you if you go out and t- tomorrow and and buy yourself a, a sport boat with to go fishing or, or perhaps do some whale watching on your own and and you uh, and you you're conscientious you want it to be quiet you don't want it to hurt the whales 
you can't get that information. You can't decide which kind of boat to buy or, what, or most importantly, what kind of outboard engine or, or inboard engine, for that matter, to buy um, that would be the most quiet. That information just isn't, isn't made available. Um, the manufacturers uh, don't make it available and the government doesn't require them to. So as a consumer, you have no uh, ability. You can control your own um, uh, the way you operate the boat, and I think a lot of boaters are getting better and better at that. But we really need that uh, those standards um, and uh, and information to be able to make smart choices about how to uh, you know how to how to how to uh, get equipment that's uh, that's quiet. And do you feel like that's a choice that people would make? Like there is a recognition on the part of individuals that I don't want to impact the whales. I think uh, not everybody, of course, but I think a lot of uh, a lot of boaters out there really are are quite concerned. We do a fair bit of public education work where we go and talk with 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 boaters and boating organizations, uh, and some of our partner NGOs like the Georgia Strait Alliance is particularly good in this area, um, and um, and boaters are generally they want to. I'd say most Canadian boaters in Southern BC want to do the right thing. Um, yep. Okay, so also just one quick question here, too, about the fact that there's certain areas that are impacted. Tour operators have to behave more carefully here, too, don't they? Yes, well, yes, and those measures came in um, uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, yes, they do. They, um, there's been a, an agreement between the federal government and the, the uh, Pacific Whale Watch Association that allows those, um, those vessels um, uh, a relaxation of one of the rules that other boaters face in exchange for those boaters um, uh, agreeing not to watch the southern resident killer whales, which they're capable of identifying. And I think this is a good, good, good agreement. Um, it, it's it's helpful, um, and uh, it's changed the landscape. Uh, as far as the pressure from commercial whale watching uh, vessels is concerned. Well, there's some positive news there. Then, Lance, thank you so much for your time. Yes, there certainly are some positive developments. You're very welcome tonight. Take, okay. Take care. That's Lance Barrett-Leonard, who's a senior scientist with the Raincoast Conservation Foundation, talking about the southern resident killer whale population being protected, uh, hopefully with these summertime measures that are being brought in. So if you operate watercraft in some of these areas, you need to know what these new rules are. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. It seems that the new director of planning at City Hall doesn't understand um, the culture here in Vancouver and how long it's taken to build the communities. We definitely need housing, affordable housing in the city. But this is not about affordable housing. This is about developers getting profits. Those are just a few of the people among the more than 100 or so that rallied at Vancouver City Hall on Saturday. Now, they were there because they opposed the proposed 
Broadway plan. You probably heard a lot about this in the news. This is a plan that would allow for significant new and increased density along the Broadway corridor to go along with the construction of the Broadway subway there. So this is a huge proposal. It is headed to Vancouver City Council, and really it's meant to guide the next 30 years or so of development in that area. Let's talk more about it this morning. Joining us is Brent Totterin, who's a city planner and urbanist at Todd Urban Works and a former Vancouver chief planner. Brent, thanks for being back with us. My pleasure, Simi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Brent, how do you feel about the Broadway plan? Well, I'm of two minds of it, uh, but my but my minds are very different than some of the protesters that you just quoted. I, I think it's entirely likely that given the consequences we're already seeing uh, with uh, the various crises we face in our city, the climate crisis, the affordability and housing crisis, it's entirely possible that in five years we're going to think this plan didn't go far enough. And th- that's what I'm seeing. I've been a city planner for 30 years in cities all over the world, and that's what I'm seeing relative to the plans we did even five years ago or 10 years ago. Uh, But I do think, given that this plan has been worked on for years, heck, it was being worked on while I was at City Hall 10 years ago. Uh, I think it's high time it was approved. I'm glad that the mayor is considering additional motions to address even further issues of affordability. But I think the plan is badly needed. It's bold. Uh, It's about as bold as you're going to get in an election year. Uh, and I give staff credit for being brave in that context. I do think it probably doesn't quite go far enough, but it certainly um, um, is, isn't a case where it's going too far when you think about the huge costs and consequences of the climate emergency, the housing emergency, the public health emergency, many of the emergencies that are every city in Canada is facing right now. Right. I know we often talk about this, like ways to plan for more people coming here and living here and affordable housing. But this plan in particular seems to have generated more opposition than we normally see, wouldn't you say? I can't. I cannot disagree more. Uh, to me, it feels like deja vu. Really? The same, I, I, like I said, I was chief planner for six years. I've been a city planner for 30 years. The same things are being said by the protesters about this plan that I've heard almost every time. I swear I've seen versions of that protest several times while I was chief planner with the same kind of rhetoric, even the same signs. So it, it feels like it's the same kind of commentary from the same kind of voices. But remember, the city planners at City Hall hear from all sorts of voices, diverse voices, including the voices that aren't even close to having their needs met which is very different from the kind of commentary you hear from the folks who have what they want and just want to protect it from change. So, uh, frankly, I, I haven't seen a huge outcry compared to what I see in, in even in the past in Vancouver, let alone other cities. This seems to me to be the same old, same old. But what is different is you've got a plan that is a truly a once-in-a-generation plan, You've got a once-in-a-generation kind of infrastructure investment in an urban setting like the Broadway Corridor, billions of dollars going into Subway. You've got a city that is something like uh, the the recent housing study said we're 86,000 homes short from where we should be already, and we need another 50,000 plus 20,000 special needs housing in the next 10 years. We're not close to keeping up on the housing we need. We're not going nearly far enough in addressing the climate emergency, the housing emergency, the recent report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change specifically called out cities for not going far enough, fast enough 
in terms of mitigating the climate crisis. So the consequences of getting this wrong, of being irresponsible, given the needs that we have, are huge. So I was not that moved by the same voices with the same commentary from, frankly, the same demographic groups and constituencies that we've been hearing from for years. What about that? the criticism, though, of the idea that these are going to be this is going to be a concrete canyon along Broadway that's going to create these huge towers. Do you have a problem with that? Well, it's same old, same old. It's uh, um, if you don't like the plan, attack the director of planning. I've certainly heard that one before. If you if you say that this isn't about affordable housing, it's about um, or sorry, it, it's about developer profit. I've certainly heard that one before. This plan goes further in terms of addressing affordable housing in an area plan than Vancouver has ever even tried to do, including in my time as chief planner. But how do we know this will be affordable housing, though, Brent? How do we know that it won't be just more expensive condos? Oh, it, it, well, first of all, it limits the amount of condos more than any other plan has done. It mandates rental housing and affordable housing more than any other planning has done. But I can't tell you it won't be expensive because the problem is we're 86,000 homes short from what we already need to be, of course, everything is expensive. So there is a big part of this that is says we are way behind on building housing. But this plan goes further than that. It says we're going to do virtually Herculean efforts to try to make it as affordable as we can be in the context of an expensive city. So it's a kind of a red herring to say, how can you prove this will be affordable housing? I can guarantee you that if this isn't built, all the existing housing will just go up and up and up in price. And frankly, that's one of the reasons why people don't want some change, because the folks who already own their homes have no real incentive to support more housing when their, inc- your, when their housing equity just keeps going up and up and up. What do you think is going to happen, though? Do you have a prediction? Will this thing get passed? Well, I think everyone who supports climate emergency who supports um, mitigation of the climate emergency, who wants true action on that, as the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said, needs to come out and support boldness and braveness on the part of City Hall and uh, Council in an election year. Because it's tough to do the right thing when it's controversial on the part of at least some. And it's not hugely controversial, but it's controversial on the part of just us some. Everyone who supports real meaningful action on the housing emergency, on the climate emergency, has to have their voice heard by council. Because this is an election year. It's hard for council in election year, trust me, I know, to do the right thing from a planning perspective when everybody's running for re-election. So they need to have your voices heard. All right, Brent, thanks so much for your time on that this morning. My pleasure. That's Brent Totterin, who is a city planner and urbanist at Totterburn Works and a former Vancouver chief planner talking about the Broadway plan. You've undoubtedly been hearing about this and seeing the the pictures of potentially what Broadway might look like with all these big kind of high rises there. And that has a lot of people very upset. In fact, they were protesting out in front of Vancouver City Hall on Saturday about that. But still, this is an ambitious plan. And, you know, to be fair, it's not a plan that, like, any other community hasn't seen if SkyTrain arrives there. Look at Burnaby. SkyTrain, you know, has been there for decades, and you've seen the kind of density and expansion that happens around Metrotown and Brentwood. And essentially, look what's happening in Port Moody. Same thing, right? You're getting that same kind of concentration around those areas. 
And shouldn't Vancouver get the same thing if they're getting the Broadway plan? Found a way in, simi at cknw.com. How ready are we here in BC to protect our cities and our towns from the kind of extreme weather that we saw in 2021? The incredible excessive heat, the flooding, just the damage that we saw happen there. If if that's going to worsen in the years to come, are we even ready for that? Well, some reporters at Post Media and Vancouver Sun did a deep dive into this issue. They spent months trying to get the answers here, and they've got a seven-part series called Fire and Flood Facing Two Extremes. One of the reporters who worked on this joins us now. It's Gordon Hoekstra, an investigative reporter for the Vancouver Sun. Gordon, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me, Sydney. Tell me, where do you even start with something like this? Um, Well, you take a big step back and you uh, start trying to talk to a whole bunch of communities to see where they're at. And that's what we did with my colleague, uh, Glenda Limas. We, you know, tried to ask questions of as many communities as we could. We got responses from uh, more than 85 communities, First Nations and regional districts. And then we took a look at what that told us. So what were some of the questions that you were asking these regional districts? Well, we were asking them, you know, first of all, you know, did do you have a flood protection plan or approach to what you would do? You know, if you have one, you know, uh, what stage are you at? And, um, and uh, you know, is that plan, you know, detailed and costed and sort of ready to be implemented? Uh, and we took a kind of similar approach on the wildfire front um, for many years. Communities have been trying to uh, put together so-called community wildfire protection plans. And so we asked the same kind of questions on that. Many communities face both fire and flood risks. Okay, so what did you find out? Were there some surprises there? Um, yeah, I mean, certainly there has been some work done over the, you know, over the last decades, you know, but, but there's a lot more work that needs to be done. On, on the flood front, you know, uh, about a third of communities or less than a third of the communities have a detailed, fully detailed, you know, costed, uh, you know, protection plan. And then, and then even of those that have a plan, um, they, they don't have the resources to pay for them, to pay for it, you know, and, uh, we told of the, of the ones that had a plan, we took a total of nearly $8 billion. But, you know, um, you know, you could take an example of, you know, Abbotsford or just uh, up the, the cost of their, their plan from like about $500 million up to, uh, you know, up to $2.8 billion, And there's no way that they can pay that for that themselves. And, you know, on the fire front, uh, you know, sort of a similar thing in nearly two decades, uh, less than 10% of the sort of identified area that needed to be, to be uh, in a wildfire redistricting risk reduced in forest around communities, only less than 10% of that's been done. Okay, that is some, those are some scary numbers, Gordon. Uh, yes, they are. Yes, they are. And, you know, and certainly, you know, there has been money put into these kind of things, but, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, it, it's sort of millions when we need to be spending, uh, you know, billions of dollars, you know, on the, on, the, on the wildfire front, because it costs so much money to do these treatments, which includes thinning forests and, you know, uh, you know clearing off the debris on the forest floor and, 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 and cutting the lower limbs of trees, you know, that it all kind of does something to reduce the risk and the spread of fire. I mean, that could be as much as $6 billion. And, you know, we have spent maybe, you know, a couple hundred million dollars on that. And so this is all about kind of trying to figure out to do a kind of strategic shift. I mean, we've also spent more than $4 billion on fighting fires. And so there's, there's you know, experts we talk to, and you know, including, you know, work that's been done by the United Nations, all talks about trying to spend more of that money on preparation. So you have to spend less of it on the actual response. 
Right. So given what happened over the past year in BC, then was any of that a wake up call to the people in charge who would or should be thinking about this? I think so. Um, but when you when you talk to, uh, you know, the, the, the governments uh in, they they talk about spending more money, but there, it doesn't seem like there is a clear, strategic, you know, overarching plan for that. You know, some of our experts talk about sort of needing a kind of quarterback to steer that. Um, and certainly, from the point of view of the communities, uh, they are they are you know very frustrated and worried about the fact that they need considerably more money to tackle these issues, and so they're looking for you know, some way that, uh, you know, that, that these things can be prioritized. Maybe we should be spending money, you know, in area X as opposed to spreading it out kind of thinly around the whole province. You know, maybe the southern interior is more important to spend that money on wildfire uh, and less so on the coast right now. Right. Um, uh, that kind of thing. Okay. And so you interviewed uh, residents as well in some of these communities. And what are they telling you? Well, there, there were, there were worried. You know, we, we, we interviewed people who, you know, have been displaced by the fires. I mean, and the, and the floods. So, I mean, last year, some forty six thousand people were were evacuated because of fires and floods. And I mean, uh, you know, very uh, concerning is the fact that uh, more than sixteen hundred of those people remain displaced. Some of them, you know, obviously, you know, including from Lytton because of the wildfires. So these people have had their lives completely turned upside down and. While yes, there are you know uh, you know programs in place to assist them in terms of you know helping pay for some of the you know the displacement and the, and and you know and fixes to their properties and that kind of thing, it's the worry about what if this happens again. That's that's the big fear. You know, we talk to people in Abbotsford, you know, who are you know fixing their homes up and and worried about you know what what if this happens you know next in November there's another atmospheric river and you know of course experts are telling us that all of these things are likely to be more frequent and severe. So over the course of the seven parts that will be in the Vancouver Sun, what will we learn from reading that? Um, well, you're going to learn about, you know, some of the details of, of all the, 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 the research that we crunched. Um, you're going to learn about, uh, you know, some of these people who remain displaced and their concerns. You're also going to learn about the fact that, you know, unfortunately, wildfires fires also increase the, uh, the, uh, the risks of floods and debris flows and, uh, and that kind of thing and watersheds. So that's another concern. So you sort of double up there. And we also took a look at some other jurisdictions in the world and what they're doing and what there might be some other alternative measures. Obviously, if you have this huge cost, I mean, is there some other way that we can use, you know, Mother Nature to, to do this? So in places like Holland, where they've had a long history of flood, they're actually starting to move back some of their dikes and, and restore, uh, you know, natural floodplains and that kind of thing. So it'll also take a look at some of that. So maybe some of those solutions that could be longer term and maybe help us mitigate some of those costs. That is fascinating work. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about it this morning. All right. Thanks, Amy. Appreciate that. Gordon Hoekstra is an investigative reporter for the Vancouver Sun. Uh, he is one of the reporters who worked on this seven-part series that the Vancouver Sun will have, and it's called Fire and Flood Facing Two Extremes. It is their investigation into whether or not communities around BC, our cities and our towns, are ready for more extreme weather. Are we ready for heat and wildfires and more flooding? And the answer sounds like we have a lot of work to do. So check that out.
All right, let's talk about ride sharing here in BC. Boy, it was an uphill climb to even get that underway. And now, a few years later, they're ubiquitous, right? You see ride sharing vehicles all over the place, mostly Uber and Lyft, the big ones. But what's it like competing with those companies if you are a Canadian ride sharing company? Well, there is one of those that is now operating in Kelowna. U Ride has been there since, well, last Thursday, actually. And we're going to find out what it has been like. Joining us now is Cody Roberto, who's a founder and CEO of U-Ride. Cody, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. How big is your company, first of all? Uh, I mean, it depends what you compare it to. Um, obviously, other rideshare companies are a lot bigger. Um, for us, we're only operating in Canada at the moment, um, and we're really focused on a certain you know type of city right now. So there's a lot of bigger cities, you know, Vancouver, Toronto, that have Uber, have Lyft. There's still a ton of communities across Canada that don't have access to reliable transportation. So we're working really, really hard to change that. Cody, how do you even start to compete with those giant companies? Um, so to, to, to be honest, uh, we have a little bit of a strange story. So my background's in soccer. I was playing professional soccer overseas, and I got injured. I went back to my hometown, Thunder Bay, Ontario, um, to do rehab and, and physiotherapy for about a year. And um, there was no Uber. There was no Lyft. Uh, we had the taxi companies op- operating operating there, but we had really limited um, public transit, and often you would wait. Uh, if it was a weekend night, you'd wait over an hour for a cab. If it was a holiday, you could, could wait three to four hours. So when we first started, it was just about fixing this problem in, in my city, and that's how U-Ride was, was born. And then we quickly started driving people from all these smaller communities across Canada. Um, and it was really hard. Uh, we had to figure out how to operate in these markets where, like most rideshare companies, have a really hard time. Um, and yeah, we had to do things a bit different. And we just, you know, kept trying and uh, tweaking things until we found a model that works in smaller communities. And uh, it's it's been going really well now. Okay, so what is the key then? What is the difference between operating in these smaller communities and a bigger community? Uh, so a huge focus for us is taking care of our drivers. On on the passenger side, um, the experience is pretty much the same. You click a button, uh, you get matched with the nearest available driver, you get to watch them on a map as they drive to your location. On the driver side, we have to make sure drivers are earning consistent, reliable income. So for us, we use a scheduling system based on predictive demand. So every week, drivers go and they put um, the days and the times where they'd like to work, um, but there's a capture in certain hours. So for example, if it's a Monday afternoon uh, in Kelowna, you're not going to need you know, 300 drivers. When you do that, Drivers working those periods won't make consistent uh, won't make consistent income. So we really um, try to focus on ensuring that drivers are making good, reliable income while passengers are getting picked up quick. And that's something that's really helped us. Another big thing for us is we love getting involved in the community and and sort of giving back uh, however we possibly can. So we partner right. with local businesses, um, and that, you know uh, we're always picking days. We try to do it once or twice a month where. A portion of all rides go to local charities. So there's these different things that we built to, to operate in these places and, and just, you know, um, be part of the community. Right. That's a, that's a big one for us. Is there a sweet spot, Cody, is there a sweet spot for the size of a community that can support a more local ride-sharing option versus a bigger company? So it's a good question for us. Um, right now, the, the biggest city we're in um, you know, up until this point, it was Sudbury. It was 160,000, and the smallest was 40,000. 
there's a major transportation problems in even smaller communities as well, of like 10,000 to 15,000 people. Um, and the federal government actually created a fund. So they have $250 million um, over the next five years that will be going into rural transportation. So some cities have started tapping into that. These smaller markets where it is um, really difficult to, to operate. But yeah, we're always trying to figure out how small communities we can go into and, and, and solve this problem. Okay, so do you see more expansion in some BC markets then? We do. So initially, uh, obviously, we, we just launched Kelowna. We're going to be launching Kamloops, uh, Prince George, Nanaimo. Um, we intend to launch Victoria. And then from there, we'll look to uh, go deeper into the province. So one of the issues that came up when BC was trying to get into ride sharing was that uh, the government, both governments at the time, the previous one and this one, said they wanted to support more local options. Has that been happening? Like, what is government support like? Uh, the government support, it, it was really challenging to um, to start, just to be completely honest. Uh, yeah, it was uh, really difficult. But other than that, now that we're approved to operate in four of the regions, um, yeah, we I mean, the government, they've been helpful uh, with the licensing process. Uh, When we've had concerns and brought it up, you know, um, they've worked with us. Um, But, yeah, most of of what we need to do is just execute on our end. We need to do a great job getting drivers on board and make make sure we're um, giving drivers consistent, reliable income. That's the most important thing at this point. And if we do that, the drivers will be there to pick the passengers up and, and get them home quick. Cody, I'm so curious, though. How do you go from, like, playing soccer <laughs> to, to doing this? Yeah. Um, I just saw a problem that I thought shouldn't exist, right? Um, I, I, I asked the question, like, why don't we have Uber here? It doesn't make sense to me. And um, to be honest, like, I used to, after a night out, I would give people free rides, be crowds of people stranded, sometimes in minus 30. So I give free rides to people, but couldn't put a dent into these crowds. And um, drinking and driving is a, a major problem, um, especially where I'm from. So I've had friends who have been killed by impaired drivers. I also have friends who have been behind the wheel and killed someone. So it was something that was really personal to me. Um, and I thought, you know, I had that year off from soccer and um, I was back home anyways. I just really... Uh, it was a problem that shouldn't exist, so I sort of set my mind to, to, to trying to resolve this. And fortunately, we had a ton of incredible, incredible people that came on board. Um, all of our drivers, we had a ton of support from the community. We had some great people join on, on the management side as well that have all played a massive, massive role um, in changing the way uh, these cities move. So interesting. Cody, thank you for your time on that this morning. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate it.